Hello, everyone. This is your friendly neighborhood flagship Lions of Liberty host, Mark Clare, here with a very special pre-show announcement. Now, as some of you may have heard, we have recently been demonetized, demonetized on YouTube, our entire channel. And this comes just at the time when we were really amping up our video content, had a ton of great interviews we recorded at Porkfest. But not to be deterred, we're going to turn that frown upside down. And this week, we're doing a very special free preview, I guess you might say, of our Patreon. A great way you can support us if you'd like to help us out in these very dark times. Uh, you can, of course, find our Patreon by heading over to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. And one popular segment we do on the Patreon is a show called Conspiracy Corner. And this week, for the very first time, we're going to be releasing Conspiracy Corner to our public feed this coming Thursday. And it will only be available for two days. We're going to leave it up through Saturday night or so. So you have a very sp- small window in which to sample the Lions of Liberty Pride for free. Now, actual members of the Pride will also get access to the video as well as live streams. And we now have a very special preview level called the Lions Cubs level for as little as $2, just $2 a month. You can get access to our private Facebook group and that allows you to see live stream recordings of Conspiracy Corner, um, Liberty Draft, the Libertarians and Living Rooms drinking liquor shows we do. It's a great way to sample the Pride and just help us out. So if you want to help us now that we've been kicked off YouTube just as we invest all this money into uh, video equipment and that sort of thing. Uh, that's a very simple way to help us. As little as $2 a month, you can get a little preview, join the Facebook group, get some uh, get some chatty time with us, because we like to chat, and we get really serious in the uh, private group. Not serious. We get, well, we get fun. We get serious. We get personal. Check it out. That's all it takes. Head over to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty to join the Lions of Liberty Pride. And in the meantime, keep an eye out on that public feed, the Lions of Liberty feed. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a very special conspiracy corner this week. We'll be looking at the Epstein case, something everybody's been talking about. So stay tuned and please do enjoy today's show. This is the 409th episode, which means you can find today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 409. Friends, I've got a fun show planned for you today. I know it's going to be fun because I've got a couple very fun friends of the show here with me, both from the excellent organization AIER, the American Institute for Economic Research. First up, she is the publications manager at AIER. She first appeared on episode 387 of this podcast earlier this year. Very pleased to welcome back Miss Chloe Anagnos. Chloe, are you ready to roar? I am ready. Let's do it. Excellent. And uh, what are you drinking over there, Chloe, today? So I have, it's um, a white wine, it's called Diamond, and it is from an Indiana winery. I love it. It's called Two E's Winery, and it's based in Huntington, Indiana. So I try to stock up a couple times a year, and it is fantastic. It's a sweet white wine. Two E's, what do the E's stand for? So it actually stands for Eric and Emily Harris. They're the owners. So um, Emily was actually a former Miss Indiana, and so I always love to shop local, especially for people that I know, so... You're welcome, guys, for the free advertisement. Feel free to send some money my way. That's you know that's totally optional. 
Absolutely. But if they see a boost in sales from this episode, you know, who knows? Who knows where things can lead? Who knows? Who knows? I'll have to send it to her afterwards. All right. And next up, he is a senior research fellow at AIER. He first appeared on episode 311. And most recently, just a couple weeks ago, I got to interview him as part of our Porkfest coverage. Very pleased to welcome back Phil Magnus. Phil, are you ready to roar? I am ready to roar. Excellent. And what are you drinking there today, Phil? Well, was just finishing up a beer, but I am switching over to a little bit of Talisker Scotch. Uh-oh, he's making the big switch over yeah. live right here. <laughs> we're going to see the transformation right before our yeah, very eyes. Yeah. Well, uh, since we're all drinking, I'm actually drinking. I'm going out for some sushi after this, so I figured I would just stay on the right line. I'm drinking a Sapporo. I've got a little bit of cold sake here to back me up just in case I need it. I have a feeling I might, especially with Phil switching over to the scotch so early. I, I think I'm going <laughs> to need to call in the reserves pretty soon. We're on uh, the East but, Coast here. So. Yeah, you guys got – well, I have a head start on you, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you we're go. all on the same time, but – Time tra- time is all c- confusing to me, you know. We really got to end the time zones. <laughs> but I have a head start, yes. Uh, that being said, considering we all have alcohol in hand, I think it's very safe to declare this an official iteration of libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor. And we're going to be discussing a very interesting subject today. We're going to be talking about an interesting person, a, uh, a figure in libertarian thought. And it's a gentleman by the name of Lysander Spooner. And now, uh, Philly, Phil and Chloe, you're both part of publishing this book, this new compilation of Lysander Spooner's uh, public letters and essays, which I believe includes like 40 years worth of newspaper editorials and his contributions to the magazine Liberty. So I really want to start off just talking about, uh, and you guys can take this, whoever wants to take it first, take it away, uh, really just who Lysander Spooner Spooner is for some people. I'm sure most people that listen to the show have at least heard the name in passing if they're not uh, very familiar with his work. But why don't you guys just take it away and tell us a little bit about you know why he's so important to libertarian thought. This is Anarchy here. Either of you can take it away. Sure. Go ahead. I'll let you start. Yeah, yeah. So Lysander Spooner is a, uh, a 19th century legal philosopher and theorist who embraced over the course of his life a, um, a perspective of radical individualist anarchy. Uh, he's one of the first Americans to really uh, embrace that perspective and take it uh, to kind of a new level of political organization. Uh, he was involved in just about every uh, great liberal cause of the 19th century, really kind of entered into uh, public life as an abolitionist, and not just uh, any abolitionist, but the type of uh, abolitionist that wanted to go invade the South and hand out guns to slaves to allow them to liberate themselves. Uh, so really on the on the radical extreme of that movement itself uh, and did so from a, a purely libertarian uh, perspective that uh, was rooted in the, uh, the, the individual rights of, of human beings. But uh, he also, over the course of his life and career, uh, you know, civil war in slavery, he turns his attention to a variety of other issues and problems during the day. Um, and eventually comes to a radical position that the United States government itself is an illegitimate entity. It's something that's imposing force um, upon subjects that were not uh, willing participants in this. He basically questions the social contract itself and points out very obviously that he never personally signed that social contract, nor did anyone else that uh, is currently living. So he, he draws into uh, question this underlying assumption of legitimacy behind not only the U.S. government, but um, really any government, and this becomes the uh, the predominant theme of his writing for the latter part of his life, uh, which uh, goes into the 1880s uh, when he finally dies. He's kind of an older senior statesman type figure among uh, classical liberals and really the the radical liberals of his day, uh, and 
serves as kind of a mentor, an intellectual mentor to the next generation. And that's uh, the figures that are involved in Liberty Magazine. So Benjamin Tucker is, uh, is one of the major uh, successors to Spooner and kind of carries his legacy into the 20th century, which is where it gets handed off uh, as a uh, kind of a foundational text to uh, modern libertarianism. Very cool. And that, that was the bell, I guess. <laughs> the, the bell declaring the end of your time. <laughs> Grab my glass. Sorry, I don't know that. <laughs> no, out. the timing was perfect. It was excellent. That that means you get to take over now, Chloe. Why, why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit about maybe like when you first came upon Lysander Spinner's work, what it means to you and why you think he's such an important figure for libertarians. Well, I think one of the, the really important parts about Lysander Spinner's work, um, and this is something that I've really come around a lot uh, in the last two years, um, is his take on intellectual property. And this is something that in my role as the publications manager at AIER has been um, in some ways really frustrating to work with. I'm sure Phil, Phil, can, Phil can attest to that. Um, but something that I think is important is that in Lysander Spooner's essay, it's called The Law of Intellectual Property. It was published in 1855. He sets out to understand the law of nature in regard to intellectual property. It's a project, he says, that must begin with understanding how and when wealth becomes property. And so that distinction is really important. Um, and then uh, he, he ends up writing that property is a right against the whole world, and it may embrace any conceivable thing which can be possessed held, used, controlled, and enjoyed by one person. Um, and so he he kind of finds that the foundation of property is each individual's natural right to provide for her own substance and happiness, and is perhaps unsurprising uh, that he regards it, uh, the right of property and intellectual wealth um, is necessary and it's legitimate. Um, so ultimately, you know, I've kind of, come around when it comes to intellectual property. I've written before, and I think, Mark, you and I talked about this, about Taylor Swift. We did. And, uh, and Good her, her ideas. Yeah, and I had a piece that came or out. Or you just know that if you were on a podcast, you probably talked about Taylor Swift. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it kind of happens a lot. But what's really been interesting for me is reading through a lot of his work, um, reading through this fabulous collection that Phil put together, and realizing that intellectual property is a racket, and Lysander, Lysander Spooner had it right. Sorry, this this wine starting to start. <laughs> um, but but another thing that Phil wrote that I think is absolutely fantastic. If folks have not read this yet, um, it's an article on the AIER website. It's called "The Astonishing Mess of Academic Publishing," and this this essay and article it really hits the nail on the head. What's been so difficult? about my role here at AIER in trying to get these fantastic works that if, if they were not published or reprinted, they'd be lost. Um, and so that's one thing that's very hard for me is to work with these really big corporations and say, hey, you know, we're trying to get this work out to the world. And then they say something like, oh, well, do you have the necessary copyright? Oh, do you have the necessary this? Oh, do you have the necessary that? And that's something that I ran into um, once Phil had this manuscript done. Um, so that's, that's kind of a, a roundabout way to answer your question. But, um, you know, I think Lysander Spooner is very, very important when it comes to talking about intellectual property. And I think that's definitely something that a lot of libertarians disagree on. So I want to dig into that a little bit more. So like when putting together this book and, um, you know, finding all this work to compile together of his, are, are there actual corporations and companies there that, that actually hold some kind of copyrights or rights to, you know, certain works of his, even from someone who's been dead for, you know, 150 plus years? 
Well, what's frustrating is that when you try to publish on, um, I, I don't want to call them out, but when you try to publish on. Oh, uh, please do. Uh, Come on. Okay. When you publish with Amazon, for example, it can be very difficult when you're uploading an interior of a paperback. So for example, we publish under what's called the Creative Commons International 4.0 mm-hmm. copyright. That's, that's our standard, right? And so something that's frustrating when I upload a lot of our books is that I provide Amazon all of the information. I provide the author um, our copyright, I provide absolutely everything. And then Amazon sometimes will come back and will say, oh, well, we don't think you hold the necessary copyright. So I've had to go back and I've had to explain, hey, this person's been dead for quite a long time. But even even if they you know, weren't dead, we're publishing under something that we definitely have the rights to. So um, I don't know, Phil, if you want to expand a little bit, but it's it's incredibly frustrating for me because it's not it's not like I just have one book at a time that I'm working on. I'm usually right. working on anywhere from, you know, eight to ten since I started with my role at AIER. So to keep everything straight can be really difficult. But, but at the same time, I mean, uh, Jeffrey Tucker, myself and Phil, we have had to prove over and over again in emails and phone calls to Amazon. Did you know that you can, you can call Amazon? That's a thing. Um, but we have to explain IP and we've had to explain like, hey, this is our position. This is why we're right. And we ultimately leave it in their hands to decide whether or not they're going to allow us to publish on their platform and sell on their platform, or if they're just going to block us. And unfortunately it has happened once, but through the power of the internet, you know, we can still sell our publications, but um, it's, it's been kind of a challenge. Maybe just tell them to read some of the stuff that you're trying to publish and then maybe they'll they'll get there on their own. (laughs) Phil, do you care to expand on, on that? Yeah, so uh, in this particular book, uh, we were a bit fortunate because the uh, the most recent uh, work that appears in there, I think, was written in 1887. So uh, that predates uh, quite a bit of, uh, of when the copyright law sticks in. But uh, yeah, as Chloe was saying, uh, we have this experience on a weekly basis that uh, if you want to publish more recent works, uh, you normally have to track down exhaustive uh, documentation of it. Uh, so for example, uh, I was working with an author today uh, who uh, were looking to reprint a work that belonged to his father, and he has to demonstrate as as the son of that author that he owns the copyright. And that just creates uh, mounds of unnecessary paperwork every single time we do it. But uh, it, it's a, a real challenging uh, of the uh, publishing world, even when legally something should be in the clear. I'm kind of curious a little bit more on sort of your process in in finding these works and tracking all this stuff down. Um, kind of what what was your starting point there? I mean, did you have ideas in your head about exactly where you need to go to find this stuff, or was there a little more sort of a sleuthing involved? Yeah, so um, I say a little bit of both. Uh, and Spooner was a prolific newspaper writer, editorialist. He was also a pamphleteer. Uh, most of his best known works are these longer tracks and books that came out during his lifetime. But uh, from the 1840s until his death, uh, he regularly supported himself by writing uh, letters and short editorials and newspaper columns to uh, publications that were all over New England. Sometimes he even uh, ghost wrote a few of them for, for friends that operated in his circles, and they defer to him for legal expertise, and he'd write part of a chapter or part of an essay that appears under their name. So uh, what I started uh, on this project with was uh, going to the best known, and that's Liberty Magazine, which was the paper he wrote for, magazine he wrote for, for the uh, the last several years of his life. It was Benjamin Tucker's uh, anarcho-libertarian uh, uh, outlet that he basically published in New England, and it, it had some broader spread beyond that. But Spooner 
was a, uh, a regular columnist for it. Unfortunately, none of the editorials in Liberty Magazine were signed. Uh, they used a code system, and Spooner uh, had a letter assigned to him. Uh, I think it was the letter O. Every time that uh, Tucker ran one of his editorials, uh, you find an O at the bottom of it. That tells us that's why Sanders Spooner. Uh, Tucker revealed this after Spooner died in his obituary and said, if you go back to all the magazine issues of, uh, of Liberty, you can find which um, editorial Spooner wrote by this code that I'm now going to tell you before the public. Uh, he also mentioned some of the earlier things that Spooner had written uh, for publications that predated uh, Liberty Magazine. So between those two things, I had a, a kind of a core set of texts that I started to assemble together. Uh, some others had done some work in identifying the, the Lysander Spooner pieces from uh, Liberty. There's kind of a, a bibliographic essay uh, that came out when his collected works were published in the 1970s, and some of those uh, are documented in there. So uh, using that as the core, I, I assembled all the editorials from that period and then started working back in time to the earlier publications that Benjamin Tucker mentions in his, uh, his obituary. And that leads me to uh, some publications that are, are long out of print and had very small print runs in their own time. So I had to track them down at libraries. I had to request scans of them uh, to, to find the pieces that, uh, that he wrote. Others had been digitized or were referenced in newspapers. So uh, I searched historical newspaper databases for uh, mainly responses to Spooner that other people had written. So say someone was angry at him, they'd go write the Boston Globe to respond to something else that he put in another magazine. And I could find that response and identify what the other magazine was in an approximate date range to go look for it. And just over the course of uh, several, uh, it was actually a multi-year project of, of searching for these things, I ended up with uh, what I believe to be the most complete uh, set of his newspaper editorials that's ever been assembled. Did you have to use microfiche to find his? his I did in a few cases, and that is that uh, is extremely annoying. There's <laughs> that's a, the only uh, time we ever used it was to look up weird, old, obscure, you know, newspaper articles. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, there are two publications. Uh, one called uh, the Word, and the other called the New Age, that were published out of Boston in the 1870s. Only exist on uh, on microfilm and microfiche type. Uh, readers. So I had to actually go through issue by issue and figure out where these things were. And Chloe, as the one sort of overseeing all the publications of AIER, uh, what other challenges can you kind of expand upon there that you face kind of uh, going after, you know, trying to put together a work uh, that where much of it was written almost 200 years ago, uh, as opposed to maybe some of the other th things that you're you're putting together? So I'm really fortunate in that Phil Magnus, we call him Magnus the Machine in our in our Slack channel because <laughs> you know he really is, and he can and he can find um, you know anything that he needs. He can he can just find it in terms. It's also, of his porn star name, from what I hear, but. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! I would hope not. Um, Big trouble. <laughs> I had to. You set me up for this. I mean. <laughs> oh, the worst. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I told but, you we have but, fun here. Yeah, no, we have fun. It's great. But Phil's been absolutely fantastic to work with. And we haven't had, at least I don't think, in in terms of this this publication, we haven't had too many problems. I When Phil was talking, I pulled up this email um, that I had sent to Amazon. Because um, in May, before we were able to get this online, they said uh, something to the effect of, you know, we, we can't we can't publish this work unless you have some proof that you can actually do it. I sent this long email and then my last line says, 
Lysander Spooner's work, and like I have to spell this out for people. Yeah. Lysander Spooner's <laughs> work is in the public domain as he's been dead since 1887. Please let me know if I'm missing something. Thanks. So, <laughs> Was there a reanimation I wasn't aware of? or <laughs> I, I don't know. But what's been really frustrating is that that's something that, you know, you really have to hold hands and you really have to go through and explain line by line. Otherwise, you risk them saying, hey, we're not going to set ourselves up to get sued. We're blocking it. Forget it. So something that's been really, really unfortunate, um, I wanted to introduce a new book that we have. It's The Best of Ludwig von Mises uh-huh. up on the AIER website. Um, and Jeffrey Tucker and I had to work together in order to find all of the copyright information in order to, to get this one published. But it's just five essays. But something that's really, really crazy, and you can kind of see this in – in the front end of the book, we've got, you know, the really pretty, the best of Ludwig von Mises. We had to put an actual section in the book that spelled out where we got each essay, what year it was published. And um, I mean, all of that, all of that information, because Amazon kept saying, no, we're not going to publish it. No, we're not going to publish it. They even went as far as to ask me to find the translator, their birth date and the date of their death in order to get this book up. And so I'm sitting here like frantically Googling, trying to figure out who translated one of these essays. I was able to find it fortunately because, you know, Mises is pretty, you know, prominent. Um, But ultimately they decided that they were going to block this publication. So we had to then get another vendor that we use. Um, It's based in Ohio. We ended up making the books and that's why they're being sold on the AI website and not necessarily Amazon. So again, that's really unfortunate because Amazon is so convenient and obviously the work of Lysander Spooner, of course, is super important, but so is Mises, right? So that's something where copyright and people maybe not understanding copyright or not understanding, um, you know, the fact that we do have permission, everything has been, um, you know, appeared in print under a Creative Commons license. It's just been very frustrating. So that was kind of a big blow to me. I did. I thought about crying. I didn't cry <laughs> um, when I got the email that said, oh, you've been blocked. And even in the back end of Amazon, it has in big red letters, blocked publication. <laughs> like, screw you guys too. Okay, Flashing thanks. letters that take over your whole screen. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> we ended up publishing it anyway. And this is the copy that got sent to my house. I mean, it's really, really pretty. The foreword's by Jeffrey. It's absolutely fantastic. But Again, our goal is to make sure that these publications are available to the masses. And that's just one of the examples of a way that we get stopped in doing that. So, so will, will Amazon not even sell a book? Will, will they even even distribute it, let alone? I mean, it's one thing if they decide they don't want to be the publisher because of whatever reasons. But can you can you not even sell that through Amazon? Is that what you're saying? No. So wow. what we end up doing, so Phil's book, for example, um, the two treatises that he has before the public letters and political essays came out, that's all available on Amazon. So Amazon actually makes these paperback books. Mm-hmm. So all I have to do as the publications manager is upload the interior. So I upload this PDF. I upload the the file that has the cover And then we have a fantastic, we have two fantastic graphic designers that we work with, but they design everything. I put it into the back end and Amazon prints as you order. So it's not like we're sitting on a ton of inventory, which is also really nice because I don't want to sit around and mail books all day. We just let Amazon take care of that. That would be your background right now if you guys had to stock Uh, up. 
yeah, that would be my background is just sitting in a bookstore. But what's frustrating, and we kind of talked about this, I think, on Monday, uh, but what's what's frustrating for us is that, okay, now because this book, this book isn't available on Amazon, we have to keep copies in our inventory. Yep. <laughs> We've got a box of them sitting over in the office. Yeah. Everyone oh, gets a box. In? Okay, good. Yeah, they came in. Yay. So, woo. <laughs> Well, uh, we, I think we all out there appreciate the efforts that you guys are going into to preserve all these works, whether they're by Von Mises or Spooner, because uh, I don't think most people are going to go out there digging through the microfiche to find these little articles here and there that they would you know, otherwise never be able to. So we definitely appreciate the effort. So why don't we talk a little bit more about Lysander Spooner? One thing I want to talk about, because it's really one of my favorite things that I do know about him, is uh, that he started uh, actually... He was so opposed to the the government not monopolies in general and the government monopoly on the postal service specifically that he actually started his own competing postal service. Do so you guys want to touch on that a little bit, and then we'll get into you know more of the stuff he found in the book? Yeah, that's one of the uh, the subsets. So I divided up all the different editorials by theme, so you can kind of follow his different causes across his career. But this is really one of his first things that he takes up in the 1840s. Is he notices that uh, you know postal rates are too expensive, but there's also another backstory there. Uh, the U.S. Post Office at the time was starting to censor abolitionist literature that's being mailed to the South. So they don't want uh, this to get into the hands of the slaves. They don't want uh, uh, you know the, these uh, Yankee Northerners polluting and corrupting the minds of the Southern youth. Uh, so all, all the all the typical censorship arguments come out uh, to bear. But the Post Office uh, starts putting in policies that if abolitionist literature is being mailed south, they'll intercept it. Uh, so you got two. Uh, competing entities that emerge from this because uh, Spooner decides he's going to launch his own post office. He says that, well, if the public service will not uh, carry the things that I want to send to it, and plus it's charging me an arm and a leg, I'm going to set up an alternative post office. And he does it in a really innovative way. It's uh, it's kind of a, a 19th century precursor to FedEx. Uh, what they did is they set up an office in every city up and down the East Coast, uh, so you could go to the office in Boston. There's another one in New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and all the way on down. And uh, they'd have a, uh, a daily uh, mail car, that uh, a rider that would go from office to office to office and both pick up and drop off packages, drop off uh, information. So if you knew that something was coming for you through the American Letter Mail Company, you'd go down to that office and, uh, and you'd receive it. Uh, he undercuts the price of the post office offers this as, as something that's also available to abolitionists. So they're sending material uh, down to the South. The U.S. government does not like this one bit. Uh, they actually step in and assert a monopoly. There's one instance that uh, we have a record Spooner himself is seized at uh, one of the American Letter Mail Company offices and thrown into jail, but he gets some of his lawyer friends. They, uh, they spring him and they, they never really prosecute him for anything, but it's more like a, a shot across the bow. If you keep competing against us, uh, there are going to be bad legal repercussions for you. Uh, what, what ends up happening is the post office that he sets up runs for about a year and a half to two years. And there's a little bit of the uh, uh, material that comes from that. So we, we published uh, a couple op-ed type uh, pieces he put in the Boston newspapers to announce this thing. And then also a, a letter chastising the uh, postmaster general of the United States at the time that uh, he's being persecuted uh, for this private post office that he set up and it, it kind of walks through his own political journey of dealing with um, uh, you know, an oppressive federal government that's basically trying to keep him out of the uh, competition business and also keep him out of uh, being able to send materials that they don't want southward 
So um, it, it does eventually fail. The government shuts it down. But the big uh, response to it is, as Congress passes an act, uh, realizing that if the postage rates are kept too high, we're going to keep seeing copycats and replications of this effort that Spooner launched um, in the 1840s. So they do cut the postage rates and stamps go down as a result. So even while while being shut down in his agorist activity, he was still able to sort of influence the, the monopoly over the postal service. Absolutely, that's really amazing. And this whole thing kind of demonstrates, uh, you know, why Spooner is so unique because he was such a deeply thoughtful intellectual that could write uh, a profound essay explaining his position on something. But he didn't just sit there and write that; he would go out <laughs> into the world and actually take action upon these things and be a completely complete radical, putting himself at great risk of, you know harm, death, and all those things that governments like to do. Absolutely. Hey, friends, I got to take a quick pause here to tell you about another great libertarian podcast out there. It's called Free Man Beyond the Wall, hosted by the artist formerly known as Mance Raider, now known simply by his real name of Pete Raymond. And I got to tell you, Pete is a machine. This guy brings you a new episode of his own every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and he has done some absolutely fantastic in-depth interviews. He's had on everybody from Ron Paul to Thaddeus Russell to Phil Labonte, the lead singer of All That Remains, a very diverse group of guests, not always libertarians. He also did a great show with a Washington, D.C., insider lobbyist revealing a lot of the dirt that goes on behind the scenes in DC. He has done so many interviews that I have just said, darn, I wish I did this one myself. So I really do want to highly recommend checking out Freeman Beyond the Wall. You can find it over at freemanbeyondthewall.com as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and all those fancy podcatchers out there. I'm just kind of curious, what are some of the most interesting um, topics that, that Spooner wrote on that you found uh, within your research? Maybe some things that were unexpected that you didn't necessarily know you're going to uncover through all this. Yeah, I can give you a, uh, probably three in particular. Uh, one is really short and it's the final page of the manuscript. I discovered a patent that he filed in the 1850s for a new type of mattress he was trying to invent. <laughs> and this is in the U.S. patent offices. There's a, a picture of it, a diagram. I don't know if it ever went into production, but he secured a patent for a new type of mattress. Which, uh, you know, it just kind of shows another dimension of he's a really innovative guy that uh, has he dabbles in everything. Did that have anything to do with his political philosophy or did he just feel like creating a mattress? Uh, he, while he, thought, while he's uh, at it? he was probably upset with his bed and said, I can do this better and uh, and made his own. So then uh, his other material that's very interesting, uh, one of the anonymous essays that he wrote. And this was fun to track down. So in. Um, 1864, Roger B. Taney, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, who's also the author of the Dred Scott decision, uh, says so a big pro-slavery figure. Uh, he dies in, in office, and uh, you know they, they have to replace the Chief Justice. And one of Spooner's friends, uh, attorney friends, had been asked by a magazine in uh, Boston to write an obituary for the hated Justice Taney. And uh, he, he does a standard uh, biographical account of his life, but um, he wanted to, to, to throw a twist in there, throw a, um, a radical abolitionist twist in there uh, of incorporating uh, what would have been really been Spoonerian legal theory as a critique of Tawny uh, through the back door. So, which, you, uh, which you cannot actually learn about in law school. I no, no, I don't believe that's offered as a course. It, it, it yeah. all gets into the uh, the, the question of uh, of. Can something be constitutionally permissible if it violates someone's natural rights? Uh, 
But uh, Spooner's very famous for this at the time. He, he's known as a radical abolitionist. His friend, not so much. Uh, so we find in, in later red, uh, letters and, and Benjamin Tucker's references to it, uh, he says that, well, this obituary of Justice Taney that came out in the 1860s, uh, this is 30 years later, uh, the middle section of it was secretly lit, written by Spooner, who handled all the legal analysis. Uh, and this is his way of inserting himself into kind of this mainstream publication without really being known. So I had to go find the publication, uh, find the obituary where it was written. And then uh, as best as I could, based on the style of writing and where he turns to the legal argument, I found the section that he wrote. And it's smack in the middle of the essay. Uh, hmm. It's basically his take on Justice Taney. So that, that fun little things like that. Uh, some of the better known stuff in there, I wrote all, uh, I, I reproduced all of his uh, correspondence about the John Brown conspiracy to uh, basically free the slaves of the South. And Spooner plays a bit part in that whole uh, uh, incident, uh, the, the raid on Harper's Ferry. Uh, although he's not a primary conspirator, he's friends with all of the abolitionists in New England that are financiers and conspirators with John Brown. And the fun little story about it is in 1858, Spooner had started writing a, uh, a pamphlet that basically laid out a plan for a slave revolution. And he does it in a very natural rights uh, way. He basically says, you know, uh, participants in this revolution must respect the rights of the innocents. You can't go on a mass slaughter of people. Uh, you must respect their rights as well and their property. Uh, but as slaves, uh, this is a violation of, of all basic human rights and decency. Uh, you do have a, um, um, uh, an ability to rise up and assert yourself to, uh, to, to kill, to prevent further harm to yourself. Uh, so it's, it's really couched in natural rights theory. He comes up with this, this elaborate plan and, his idea was he was going to mass mail this thing across the South. Uh, so again, he's still dabbling in the same thing that led him to the post office a decade earlier, uh, gets this thing all printed up and he shows it to one of his friends, uh, another new England abolitionist by the name of Thomas Wentworth Higginson, uh, who was one of the John Brown conspirators and Higginson reads this thing and starts to freak out. <laughs> he thinks that word has gotten out of the John Brown conspiracy. And he says, Lysander, I need you to come to Boston immediately. Be in Boston. We're meeting at this coffee shop uh, tomorrow morning. And he goes into I the think city. immediately back then meant like in three months. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> Hop on your, your horse and, and take your card into Boston. Uh, I, I need you here. And they go to this coffee shop. And, and apparently what happens, John Brown is sitting there in the coffee shop. <laughs> And Higginson says, you, you two need to talk. Uh, you're not, you're certain you're not aware of each other. Uh, you two need to be, uh, uh, you guys got to hang out. You too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Brown kind of reveals to him, uh, that raid thing you're talking about in the abstract and you're about to mail all over the South. I'm about to launch one of those on Harper's Ferry. Wow. Uh, so Spooner pulls back and, and, uh, stops the mail from going out, uh, intercepts the remaining pamphlets. Only a wow. few of them get out. Uh, Brown, of course, goes into history, leading his, his raid. It's unsuccessful, but uh, he's captured and put on trial. And uh, the next thing that comes out of the incident is the governor of Virginia uh, catches wind of this pamphlet that had been circulating around New England that was Spooner's anonymous pamphlet to the South and thinks, aha, I found the conspirator. Uh, this is the, uh, the the real proof of uh, that this isn't just John Brown. It's a vast network of uh, all these people up in the North that are, are trying to steal our slaves uh, and basically makes a public statement where he's ready to try and prosecute this person for sedition. So Spooner writes him, handwrites him a letter 
uh, it's anonymous, but it's basically uh, to the governor of Virginia says, yes, I was the author of this piece. I dare you to come arrest me. Wow. So uh, that's reprinted in there as well. So, so did he pull it back just because he didn't want it to get out ahead of time and, you know, get people sort of on guard knowing that they were actually yeah, about to do they, something like this? They didn't want to tip off that, that Brown is heading down to Harper's Ferry with this band of, uh, of ruffians that are about to seize the U.S. arsenal. Wow, that's crazy. Chloe, what about you? What are some of the most interesting you know, stories or, or topics that you uncovered, uh, you know, throughout the research for this piece? You know, I, I think Phil really hit the nail on the head. I, I wanted to go back That's to... That's a hard one to top. Yeah. It's really hard to top the, the you know, Magnus the machine over here. Um, but That's something what she that... said. <laughs> right? Um, oh, gosh. So, Chloe's blushing, everybody. Watch out. Ah, stop. You always set me up. Um, but one one thing that I think is is so interesting, going back to the whole mattress thing, um, he, he thought that it was really beneficial for folks to be self-employed. So obviously they could enjoy their full benefits without, you know, like sharing them with an employer or anybody else. Um, and I think just just to me, that really screams entrepreneur, um, individualist. And, and I think that just totally encompasses everything that Spooner, Spooner is. Um, so... I don't know, you know, maybe he was trying to to figure out a way to build a better mattress. And I just think that's <laughs> ultimately the most libertarian thing you could possibly do. It's like, you know what? I don't like my mattress, so I'm going to go ahead and build a new one. Or I don't <laughs> like, you know, I don't like this wine, so I'm going to press my own. Um, and, and I just think there's something innately American about that. Like, this this sushi's terrible. I'm going to go fishing and uh, roll my own. Yeah, roll my own. <laughs> but, but seriously, though, if you're frustrated, frustrated with something, as he was the post office, it's like, I'm going to find my own free market solution. And I think it's very important that now, kind of looking back, people realize, you know, you can, you can be an act- activist and an advocate for liberty. But if you're not necessarily walking the walk or trying to find free market solutions to, to these problems that you talk about, then maybe you're not doing it right. Yeah. It's hard to believe now, but that's basically why I started this podcast. I couldn't really find libertarian podcasts. I know, again, I know that's very hard to believe right now. What? It's hard. It's hard to meet a libertarian with that one. But that that's how long. That's how far back I go. I could hardly find any. So I was like, all right, I guess I have to start one. So a little bit of spooner in me, I guess. Just a yeah. Little bit. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'm curious. Is there anything you guys found uh, throughout the course of his writing that that really surprised you? Was there any take he had on a, on a certain issue where you said, "Oh, I, I did not expect him to you know to say that or to have that take on something"? Yes, he uh, you get into some of his later essays. Uh, these are we're talking the 1870s, 1880s. He starts really diving into the political. Uh, Day to day political events of, of, of that era. So, um, who's winning the election in Massachusetts, for example, comes up. Uh, who's being appointed to the Supreme Court? And he he takes this really biting, almost satirical um, essay style in dissecting the politics around him. Uh, so he's a very acerbic writer. He uh, uh, there's a lot of wit to him. I mean, it, it's as good as in some parts as something you'd expect from someone like Mark Twain or Ambrose Bierce. Uh, the, these or H.L. Mencken, these uh, characters that are always throwing in insults and barbs. Uh, so one of the essays is about uh, an appointee to the uh, uh, the United States Supreme Court who also happened to be a uh, former judge from Massachusetts that we think Spooner probably practiced law in his courtroom, and he absolutely hated the guy. Uh, so the, the, the first third of the essay is this merciless ridicule 
of, uh, of this justice's um, intelligence, his incompetence, his uh, uh, connection to all the cronies in, in Massachusetts State. And he says the only thing that uh, he can praise about him is he brings a lot of weight to the uh, Supreme Court bench. Well, this guy weighed about 350 pounds. <laughs> so uh, Spooner's throwing in barb after barb after barb. Uh, and it really, this biting satirical thing, but then he turns toward the end of the essay and uh, and goes deep into political philosophy. He asks the question, what does the United States Supreme Court do? Or what do, does any uh, state court or, or, or final authority in a government do? Will it exist to, to offer a stamp of approval to the different actions of the government that, uh, it, that are otherwise seen as unseemly or are contested by the populace? It's a, uh, it's a mechanism to legitimize unpopular policies. Uh, is basically his critique. And, and, you know, something like that, even though it's specific to this justice that's appointed in the 1880s, is uh, just as true to a critique we'd see of the Supreme Court today. It sounds very much like Rothbard in a sense, in the sense that he was completely opposed to this, the existence of the state, but he was completely obsessed with analyzing, uh, you know, every oh, little political race here and there, uh, which is a, kind of a very interesting juxtaposition, which is a word that's getting harder to say every minute. Chloe, what about you? Did anything sort of stand out to you as just like kind of a wow moment when, when going through all this work? Uh, you know, not 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 as much. I think the big thing for me, kind of like I said, was the whole intellectual property idea. And what's hilarious is that it's still a theme in everything. That, you know what I mean? Like even back, I mean, you would think, you know, there's printing presses and now we have tablets and computers and 5,000 bajillion different ways to get our information out. And this theme is still so common. Um, so anytime I can find a work or, um, you know, have have some type of idea that goes back to, you know, really close to the founding of our nation, um, it's it's just really interesting to me. Very cool. Now, uh, I actually want to dig in a little bit more into uh, Spooner's position uh, in regards to slavery and the Civil War, because as you've outlined, he not only was uh, intellectually supportive of a slave revolution and, you know, freeing slaves and that sort of thing. He actually wrote an actual manual about how to do it. At the same time, obviously, he was against the existence of the state at all as a legitimate authority. I have to imagine he was against the the way that you know the Civil War was carried out. But I'm kind of curious, especially in the research of this book, uh, where you came upon his writings, you know, during that specific time period, and how he sort of was able to uh, sort of, I guess jive those views of being completely for the the abolition of slavery and the freeing of the slaves with uh, the sort of methods of uh, being used by the north in terms of their waging all all that war upon the south in the name of, a, of freeing slaves right right well uh i think most readers that are familiar with spooner know one of his best known works is uh, it's called no treason the constitution of no authority which is a um, a series of articles he published in the immediate aftermath of the, of the civil war that, uh, that basically argue the social contract has been voided by the course of this war, even though we freed the slaves, which he's completely in favor of, even though he thinks that's a, the one good outcome of the war, he thinks that the way that the war has been waged and and really the, the fraud or the pretext of the politicians that were then claiming credit for uh, for waging that war, uh, he thinks that's uh, that carries some illegitimacy but, uh, behind it. And that's where he really moves into his radical anarchist phase. Well, uh, one of the things we uh, we do in the book is uh, I dug up all of his Civil War era essays, uh, and, and that starts again with his his plan to free the slaves, his correspondence regarding John Brown. 
But uh, things really start to change around the 1860 presidential election when uh, the Republican Party, this newly formed party, starts to congeal around a candidate that is actually somewhat serious about not ending slavery, but constraining it. And Spooner is approached by several prominent politicians uh, to ask them, basically, you're a well-known abolitionist. We could use your support to win the vote in Massachusetts. Uh, you're respected among this community. We want your legitimacy. That seems yeah. so insane just from today's point of view, the way libertarians are looked at, like the idea oh, exactly. that any sort of prominent politician would call upon some uh, radical anarchist for advice is just, is just you know, mind-blowing. Yeah. And there are some of these guys, they they had been uh, reading his anti-slavery tracks into the congressional record uh, years before. So he's he's a fairly well-known guy. Uh, Frederick Douglass quoted him, uh, referred to him as uh, as basically his guide on uh, constitutional principles. Uh, so it, he's, he's very much at the center of this type of a conversation. But around 1860, you get uh, – Two or three uh, really prominent politicians that in various ways are reaching out to him. One of them is uh, 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 William Seward, who is the uh, senator from New York and becomes Abraham Lincoln's secretary of state. And he writes Spooner at some point in 1860 to ask him for support on the uh, Republican ticket. And he's, he's trying to do this wink nod game is, you know, we can't say publicly that we're going to abolish slavery, but uh, uh, we want you to know that our, our heart's in the right place. And, and, and we're, we're gradually moving in that direction, which Spooner's like every moment this institution persists is an intolerable cruelty and violation of rights. Uh, the fact that you're, you're willing to compromise with it to carry this out for uh, years, if not decades, uh, basically shows that you're an intellectual fraud. You're not uh, committed to the principles that you, uh, you persist in. And he, he, he writes this scathing response to, to Seward and says, uh, look, you're, you're, uh, you're as bad, if not worse than, uh, the John C. Calhouns, the radical slave owners of the South. Uh, but uh, unlike you, they're at least honest that they admit uh, that they think slavery is, is legit, legitimate and legal. You pretend to say that it's wrong and through the back door uh, allow legal recognition of it uh, to persist. So it, it's really a, an attack on the hypocrisy there. And then the other one he goes after, this is during the middle of the Civil War, uh, Charles Sumner, who's the sitting U.S. Senator from Massachusetts, Another probably far more known to be in the abolitionist camp of, of anyone that's in elected office. And Spooner writes this scathing condemnation of him uh, because he launched and waged the war on pretexts of saving the union and not freeing the slaves. So basically saying a war to free the slaves, that's legitimate. That's in line with rights. But a war to preserve the union, this is a war to preserve a government. And the fact that you're you're fighting a war to preserve a government deprives you of the best moral argument you have against slavery. So I guess ultimately Spooner, as he laid out in his, um, you know, his, his, his sort of a plan for it, would, would support any sort of slave revolution or assistance of slaves or direct freeing of slaves, but would not support a government entity going around and taking over vast areas of geography in the name of supporting slaves, even if that was, in fact, you know, the end result. Sure, sure. 
I want to play a little. Uh, I didn't even have this in, in my wheelhouse, but I, just talking about this, all this stuff has gotten me thinking. Like, what what do you guys think that Lysander Spooner would be writing about today if he uh, survived for the next two hundred <laughs> years somehow? Uh, like, like how would he be looking at? I don't know. So you can take this any way you want. Like, I'm just picturing him sitting back on his couch watching, say, the Democratic debates <laughs> and, sure. and seeing him comment on that stuff, or you know, even even just modern day hot topics like um, you know our foreign policy or the immigration debate and that sort of thing. Feel free to shoot away on anything you're feeling here, but I, I'm just kind of yeah, yeah. brainstorming on this. I was just going to say, I think the migrant crisis was right. the first, first thing that came to mind, especially with the, oh, well, we're the whole, you know, comparing them to concentration camps that's been in, that's been in the news. So I, I'm curious to hear what your take on that is. If that yeah, yeah. Yeah, so pretend you're Lysander Spooner for a moment, I guess. Yeah, you're Lysander Spooner in this exercise. <laughs> yeah, uh, so certainly the detention of anyone is a deprivation of the rights. He stresses that free migration may be the most fundamental right that uh, that human beings have. It's the right that precedes other rights. Uh, this comes through in his anti-slavery essays. Uh, it's a big part of why he is so infuriated by something like the Fugitive Slave Clause. Uh, and the laws that are existing to enforce this. Uh, there are basically intrusions on, on people's ability to move around the country to deprive them of liberty. So I think he would absolutely find uh, detention of human beings that are simply moving across an imaginary political geographic line uh, to, to be an abomination. He'd, uh, he'd see that as uh, uh you know, a modern day equivalent of a cause that he would probably uh, speak out very strongly against. And we also have another indicator. This this ties in not only just to the migrant crisis, but uh, uh, governance in general. In the 1880s, there's a, a very slim, short record I found of a public speech that he gave. Unfortunately, the speech does not appear to survive. Um, it probably was destroyed in a fire in Benjamin Tucker's bookstore in the early 1900s. But uh, he was asked to speak about the uh, new establishment of a municipal police force in Boston. And he comes out as a police abolitionist, basically, <laughs> and says, uh, what are you doing here? You're, you're arming all these people with guns and giving them the right to go around and shoot uh, other people just because they have this badge and, the, and an authority to do so. So I could very easily see Spooner as someone who is, is speaking out against police brutality and taking up that cause as well today. Um, just a, a little glimpse, a little hint that he's saying this at the end of his life. Um, it's, a, it's a biting speech by the uh, the excerpt that we have on it because he's concerned about the uh, the corruption of municipal government. He says, basically, if you, if you allow and empower these people, there's no way to hold them to account. There's no way that you can do anything to them when they misbehave because they're operating under the license of the state. Well, that sounds familiar to quite a bit of what we hear today. This is, this is a f completely free idea that either of you or anybody listening can take because none of us believe in intellectual property. But uh, <laughs> uh, it would be really cool to have a Twitter account or a blog or something like that of like modern day Spooner or, you know, yeah. 2019 Spooner and just commentary or tweets or whatever, as if you are Lysander Spooner commenting on the actual events of the day. Do with that what you will. I don't have time, but <laughs> I'm well, do this podcast. Third book in this is installment. That's you your go. next task. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Your murder. There it is. Yeah, uh, Chloe. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on um, how Lysander Spooner would maybe analyze Taylor Swift and, and perhaps some of, some of her, her <laughs> copyright woes. Oh, <laughs> you had to tie it back in at some point. Yeah, you. I mean, you just have to with it's, me, it's right? It's Chloe's um, law. Yeah. 
it's gosh, I love her. I just love her so much. Um, no, I, I think he would find the whole, um, you know, public fight that she's been getting into with these two record labels just to be absolutely dumb. And for those and, not familiar, can you give like a 30 second recap of what that is? Yeah. So basically um, the folks who originally owned her catalog, and I'm probably going to kind of butcher it because I just stopped paying attention at one point, but that's fine. the folks who own her catalog now, um, she has a problem with them. She doesn't like them. She did not lawyer up like she should have when I guess she was 15 years old when she started, um, it, you know, in the music industry. And she essentially doesn't really own the rights, I guess, to any of her last six albums, I think is the big problem that she has. So she's been out on TMZ. She's been talking smack about the people that um, run uh, Big Machine Records. It's been this huge fight in TMZ and all of the gossip um, and so the the big argument against her is that, hey, you're the biggest pop star in the world. How do you not own the rights to your catalog? How do you not own the rights to your album work, your the art, the photos, the music, anything like that? So um, that's one thing that I found very bizarre when I started reading about this fight. Uh, but ultimately, I try to like remove myself from a lot of the drama. But um, too emotional for you. <laughs> well, not only is it too emotional, but I, I don't know how you guys feel, but I feel like when you have that much wealth and power and influence and connection, how do you not look out for your own best interest, regardless of how you feel about intellectual property? Like, how do you not look out for yourself? So that's where I was kind of confused. And then there was a lot of he said, she said about her dad, who's on the board of one of these record companies. So it's like, okay, who's telling the truth? Who's not? It's just been very, very, very odd. But I don't. I think Lysander Spooner would find it all to be just very silly. Ultimately, I find it really silly too. And I wrote in my article um, that came out recently for AIR about Taylor Swift and this whole debacle is that Taylor Smooth, Taylor Smooth, <laughs> Taylor, Taylor Smooth, Taylor I like that. Smooth. That's her porn star name. <laughs> yeah, that's her. That's her porn star. Um, Sorry, Taylor Smooth and Magnus the Machine coming to a. <laughs> Oh my gosh, you guys! It's been a local so DVD store near you, and it's only Wednesday. It's been yep, such a. Yep. Oh my god! We do it here. Um, I don't even know where I was going. With There's this. a hump day joke in there somewhere, but I won't even. Oh, don't, I guess <laughs> no, no, please don't. She ultimately is not her music. She's not her album covers. She is herself. She is her ultimate brand. No one can take that away from her. And I think I summed up my article saying that you know, everything that she's worked for for these last 15 years is still there, regardless of who owns the catalog, regardless of who owns the rights to her album covers, anything like that. So I don't, I think Lysander Spooner would find it to all be just very silly and would say, Hey, go out, keep making music. You know, you can't let some type of superficial legal battle. And he said, she said, um, between assistants and that's out on TMZ dictate what you're going to do for the rest of your career. Um, so just the, just the visual of Lysander mm-hmm. Spooner, like, you know, kicking his feet up and watching TMZ is exactly. <laughs> is right you just call her girlfriend, just shake it off. Come on now. You know? Spooner says, shake it off. There you go. I know. Why not? One last thing I wanted to ask. Um, Cause I'm just curious with all this stuff you've uncovered and I know how much you guys both, you know, probably ultimately agree with Lysander Spinner's philosophy. Is there anything either of you have stumbled across throughout this research where you said, you know, I don't really actually, I actually disagree with this here. Is, is there anything at all that, that stands out to either of you? I, I was 
to say, I don't think I've done enough research yet. As, as much as I really enjoy Lysander Spooner's work, I haven't been able to deep dive into it as much as Phil probably has. So Phil, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, so uh, he, he writes quite a bit about economic matters. And a lot of it's in, in very interesting ways. That's the other book that uh, we published a few months before this one is, is one of his lost economic treatises, or actually two of them that uh, were written in, in tandem with each other. And he's generally good on economic matters. He's very uh, rooted in, in uh, uh, private property rights, individual voluntary exchange, uh, free markets. Uh, which, which is an interesting point of contention because there's some people on kind of the, the left anarchist spectrum that have tried to secretly claim him as a precursor to socialism, which is just a load of nonsense. Uh, he is a, a core laissez-faire, uh, let the market operate, and, uh, and anyone who denies the, uh, the, the right in, in private property is, uh, is basically denying a functional um, ability of a market to organize. Uh, so he, he's good on that sense. But he's also uh, somewhat antiquated. He's very much a creature of the 19th century in, uh, say, his approach to like a theory of value or his understanding of exchange. He actually gets a little bit wedded to uh, a popular concept of the day, which was uh, tying a monetary system to land and tying other uh, uh, dimensions of the economic system to land, which we also recognize today is Georgism uh, as kind of a successor to this type of an uh, approach. So uh, I would say that I disagree with uh, some of the particulars of his economic diagnosis. On the other hand, there's a, a, a positive side to it. He is one of the earliest theorists to propose a private competitive currency system. And he does this as early as the uh, 1860s, really develops it in the 1870s. So if you think of uh, like 1800s Bitcoin, uh, Lysander Spooner is your man. Uh, and he thought this could, this could be done with, uh, with private bank issuances that are attached to a public ledger that would uh, effectively work like a, a, a blockchain that wow. could be affected at any time. So uh, he's got a really elaborate theory. And his motive for doing this, the motive behind the whole thing, is to break the government's monopoly on currency. Says governments is whenever they get involved in a currency, whether it's a, a, a relatively rigid adherence to a gold standard or something uh, that diverges from that, something that could be used in inflationary ways, it's subject to political manipulation. He says the only way we're ever going to end this political manipulation is if we do it ourselves and we do it in such a way that uh, it, it's subject to public inspection and can never be uh, contested or pulled under the mechanisms of the state. So uh, is economics is a double-edged sword, but it's got some some uh, antiquated stuff and some really interesting uh, way ahead of his time uh, type observations like that. It's really mind blowing that even you know well before he could even conceive of the ideas of digital anything, he right. <laughs> he sort of did intellectually conceive of the blockchain of just the concept yeah, of absolutely. having a sort of publicly accessible but yet completely private uh, currency. That's that's really fascinating. Very cool, guys. And uh, before we wrap up, I just want to give you guys uh, one last chance here to plug away. Plug away on everything. Uh, I know, you, Chloe, like you mentioned, you have eight, ten books in, in the works <laughs> at any given time. So feel free to plug on anything that's coming soon. And, of course, uh, let everyone know, well, this one they can get on Amazon. But, you know, some of them they got to go to AIR to, to find. But this is your yeah. job. Get, yeah. get the plugs so going. So we've been we've been really fortunate in that right now the only book that I I personally have had issues with is the Mises book in terms of getting it up on Amazon. So, um, folks, please 
buy this book on the AIER website, we actually have the um, EPUB, the digital book. You can download it for free on our website too. So if folks want to read it for free on their laptop, Kindle, or not Kindle, but you know, tablet, whatever, definitely take advantage of that. We've got some really awesome books coming down the pipeline from some other fellows here at AIER. Don't want to give too much away, but I think the artwork and the cover art will be coming out later this week. Um, so a lot of really cool things coming down the pipeline from AIER. And I think right now I'm working on, I think there's 10 books, 11 books, unless, unless Phil, you're working on one that I don't know about. So. Oh, the the secret life of, of Magnus the Machine. Uh, <laughs> the secret memoirs. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Phil, anything else you want to pl- plug in terms of, you know, your own work, your own writing or, or any of that? Or does, does Chloe just control you now entirely? Uh, she, she does all the sales and make, makes these things actually happen where you get a physical copy. But, you know, I'll plug the book again. It's uh, Public Letters. Oh, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if we actually named the official book, but but go ahead. Yeah, Public Letters and Political Essays of Lysander Spooner. Uh, I think it's, what, fifteen ninety five on Amazon. Uh, you can get it on there or on our website. Uh, if you have uh, read Spooner before, you'll like the style. You'll like the uh, um, the acerbicism that he writes with and the, and the fervor that carries with it. But you'll also see, I guarantee you, you will also see things that have never appeared in print in our lifetime, things that have been uh, lost in newspaper archives for over 150 years. So uh, this is a chance, uh, uh, something rare. You get to see a relatively well-known uh, writer, uh, famous essayist in libertarian circles, but new material from him, even though he's been dead since 1887. And I will say the, the digital book is only five dollars so yes. if you i mean it's so affordable come on cheapos you got five yeah. bucks yeah or you can pay in bitcoin I'll, I'll take that as well which lysander spooner would philosophically approve of yeah. i imagine uh phil chloe thank you guys so much for coming on the show it's been a blast so excited that there are people like you out there that are doing all this work uh, that are willing to you know weed through the micro fiche and you know deal oh, with uh, amazon lawyers and, and all this nonsense just to get this amazing work out there so people can see for as little as five bucks, really. And I, of course, will link to all this stuff that we talked about in today's show notes. Friends, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a blast. Keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks so much, Mark. Appreciate it. All right. Well, what a fun time it was having Chloe and Phil, or should I call him Magnus the Machine of AIER. Again, the American Institute for Economic Research. Check out all the fine work they're doing. They're pumping out articles and great publications now. So I will certainly link to the book Public Letters and Political Essays by Lysander Spooner over at today's show notes, which you can find again at lionsofliberty.com slash 409. And what a week we've got coming up, of course. On Wednesday, as usual, Brian will be back with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land. And then on Friday... Wrapping up the week, John Odermatt will bring you another hard-hitting, inspirational edition of Felony Friday, looking at the broken criminal justice system, but sandwiched in between, as I mentioned at the top of the show, of a very special public for the very first time edition of Conspiracy Corner, so you can get a little preview of what you're missing if you're not one of our amazing Patreon subscribers. So this is just really an effort to say, screw it. YouTube's going to demonetize us. We'll demonetize ourselves for a minute to share our content uh, with our wider audience, especially with the Jeffrey Epstein 
case getting so much mainstream attention and being such a topic of discussion right now, it seems like the perfect time for the Conspiracy Corner crew, which is typically myself, uh, Howie Snowden, J.B. Lubin, and the illustrious Rico. So we'll be diving, deep diving into the Epstein case this week. Look for it on Thursday. Be sure to get over there, download it, at least download it. You don't have to listen right away. I suppose if you download it, you can listen to it whenever you want. But we're only going to have it up there for a couple days, a very short window you got to preview all the great content that we put out for our patrons, our members of the Lions of Liberty Pride. Again, you can check that out at patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. I would also be remiss if I didn't mention, once again, our amazing Morning Roar brand of coffee. We have partnered with Anarcho Coffee to bring you the Morning Roar. What better way to start your day than with a delicious cup of coffee that supports two liberty causes? You get to support uh, our friend Jake Aitano at Anarcho Inc., uh, his podcast and his company, Anarcho Coffee. And you also get to support your friends here at Lions of Liberty. And you get delicious coffee. It's really the best deal possible. So check that out at lionsofliberty.com slash coffee. And until next time, my friends, live long! and live free.